Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. Jonathan Golub with us with Credit Suisse. Of course, his great notoriety is I've never heard him say, go to cash. John Golub joins us. Are we, are, how distant are we from go to cash? Well, Tom, there will be a time when I get on air and say that, and it's not now. I'm waiting. <laughs> no, but listen, the, the, the likelihood of having a recession, unless something catastrophic right. shows up tomorrow, is is super low. The, the financial risk is, is weak, so no, I, th- I think everything's great. I, I go back with Credit Suisse research. This is off DLJ and the merger with Credit Suisse years ago. Tom Gelvin's great research, Price to Sales, I think of Mark Flannery, who was iconic in oil. The Excel spreadsheety of your shop, how do you fold the business data that you see now in America into what we just heard on the trade war? You know, I don't think they reconcile. And what I mean by that is, is that when, when if, if this trade stuff gets sloppy, it's going to hit the PE multiple, the valuations we put on stocks, not on the underlying earnings. Or if it's going to hit earnings, it's going to take a long wait, time. Wait, wait, How do you, you, you're telling me it's all numerator based? The, if the PE multiple comes in, it's all numerator based and not denominator uh, earnings based? On, on the stuff related to trade, absolutely. This Right right this minute, this is a, a sentiment issue that this is going to create. I mean, what is the concern that all of a sudden the consumer sees this, they stop spending because they get concerned about the economy and their jobs. Businesses get concerned because they don't know how to spend money and they don't know whether they yeah. see what the future. And and mind you, th- those, those might be there, but, but right now in terms of actual Basis points of earnings, very, very little. John, you came out with a note, you and the team over at Credit Suisse very recently, and I understand it got a bit of pushback, so walk me through it. The case for much higher valuations. Make the case for much higher valuations. Well, funny, it's a funny thing is is the second you put a piece like like that out, you get pushback from all Especially the bears. Especially at a time like this. Yeah. yeah, I mean, here's here's the bottom line. Businesses in the United States have gone what I call capital light. They've gone towards services. They've outsourced production overseas. They've, they're running their businesses with much less capital. And the result is that they are returning more of their cash flows back to shareholders in the form of dividends and buybacks. When we think about a PE multiple on stocks, the reason we use earnings is because it's a proxy for the cash flows of the company over time. But if the businesses are generating more cash flow per dollar of earnings, then the stock is worth more than it has historically. Um, Just to put it in perspective, um, right now, PEs um, are about 15% above long-term averages. But the price to cash flow is 20% below its long-term averages. That's a huge difference. So the immediate question you'll get asked, I'm sure, is that, okay, this is the index level story. Is it one sector skewing it or is it across the board? Lift the lid on the index for us. What's happening beneath the surface? Yeah, and that's, that's that's a great question. And I think that there's two stories here. The first is that tech companies are so much more cash flow rich, their margins 
are so much higher that as the market becomes more tech dominated, the cash flow generation for the whole market is lifted up. Yeah. About 55% of the, of the benefit is the fact that the S&P today does not look like the S&P of a decade ago. 45% is individual companies literally doing something different today than they did 10 years ago. And so it's it's a mix of both. You're, you're very mathy today. Is this because there was no English football this weekend? There was. There was the FA Cup final. Oh, I missed that. You didn't that. watch Excuse that. Excuse me, no. Why are we pivoting to sport already? Because you're, you're very We've mathy. We've got two minutes I, left with Jonathan Gollum. This, this mathy. John, the S&P is not what it was 10 years ago. I mean, we get that with Amazon and Apple and the others. Expand on that. Well, just, just think, Tom, you and I on, on the TV show before this were talking about the consumer discretionary space. Just think about what a retailer is today and how we purchase things. Think about the margins. Stop. That, we go to Amazon. Right. And the, and the margin potential there, the growth potential there is just much greater. The efficiencies of the business models are, are greater there. And that's really what's uh, changing. And frankly, even companies you were talking about before, even businesses in old sectors, the, you know, in, in airlines, in autos, are using technology better. They're outsourcing to overseas suppliers um, in ways that, that allow them to generate more cash flow for a dollar a sale. Jonathan Gollop, great to have you with us this morning. Appreciate your time. Shanali Basak with us now on finance, but there's only one finance story that matters, and that's Deutsche Bank. It's been an ongoing story of Bloomberg reporting and many other shops. The New York Times uh, this weekend crushes Deutsche Bank with they sort of knew what was going on and they didn't do it. And da, 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 with an update, Shanali Basak, how will the regulators in the United States, how will the regulators in Germany react to what the New York Times reported this weekend? What's a big deal about the New York Times story is they said, yes, they saw suspicious activity, but they did not file suspicious activity reports to the Treasury Department. What's the history of regulators in America on that kind of printed journalism, if you will? They're they're tough on it, right? They're I tough mean, on it. They're tough Agreed. On it. And they also, I mean, it's not even just people familiar. They had somebody on the record exactly. that worked in the division exactly. over the weekend. That was pretty staggering, I thought. So what happens today? I mean, does somebody die? They, they go, okay, wait till Monday. They pick up the phone. And they say, that's it? Or do they lecture the German regulators? I mean, what's the history of how U.S. regulators deal with what's in the New York Times when some senator or some congressman sees it? Frankly, progress is very, very, very slow. Uh, and, and, you know, the U.S. could probably be better at working with their international counterparts. But, you know, you, you've got to be sure that when it comes to a bank of this scale that they are talking to each other. The Donskin matter, the, one of the biggest money laundering scandals of all separate time. Separate from this report this weekend. Separate from this report. Right. That's another issue that our own reporting also right. showed, that they also didn't file suspicious activity reports when it, in regard okay, to Donska. When they found it I mean, John, in the Jacksonville I, did, you, did you see this this weekend, John? You were standing outside Glossier trying to get in, but <laughs> um, but you know you Great see store. this. You see the I know you Fantastic see this article. Store. You see this article and you go, okay, when is enough enough? What did you think as this story was advanced 
by the Times. The, the biggest piece of the story for me was, I mean, this comes in the middle of subpoenas by the House Financial Services Committee looking for more information about Donald Trump and its relationship to Deutsche Bank. And then on top of that, some of this was found as early as 2016, 2017, which is definitely, um, you know, there are a lot of the same people working at Deutsche Bank now that there were then. So you can't keep on blaming the past uh, when, when some of this stuff was happening so soon. UBS cutting the stock this morning, pretty aggressive price target. I guess that would have been aggressive many years ago at 570, now seemingly set to break six. We're at 665 right now. So UBS with the second lowest price target on the street, 570. Walk me through the problems outside of the politics, Shanali. It is not looking good right now. Right. We were just talking about some of the regulatory issues, but let's talk about how they have an annual meeting coming up just on Thursday and how some people are very much against the current management, very much against the board. And so it might get pretty contentious. We have a story out this morning saying BlackRock has outsourced um, its decision making to another firm. Okay, What does that mean? It means that no matter what happens, BlackRock wants to say, put their hands back and say, we did the best possible thing for our shareholders and got independent advice as well. Uh, The Deutsche Bank story is a complicated one, right? Because there is not a really clear future ahead. Um, Do you have the same people at the top of the helm who have been there forever, who know where all the bodies are buried? Or do you have somebody else come in and carve a new, more aggressive future for this bank? So we're talking potentially a leadership change again at Deutsche Bank, really? Right. That's the question. If there was a leadership change again then how do you create a new strategy? It takes years to implement a new strategy. Also, your favorite question, Tom, is anyone going to ever buy Deutsche Bank? If you buy Deutsche Bank, you have to buy all their legal problems also. And so who's going to inherit a firm where the trajectory is on the decline with mounting legal problems? I I took a long-term trend study today from 2007 in two standard deviations, which is a hugely rare event for any (laughs) bank, including Deutsche Bank, is 6.10 euros per share. Well, right now it's 6.64. Folks, all you need to know is that's a lot closer than it was a week or two weeks ago. Is there a tip point in share price where all this dialogue changes? It's funny. I feel like, um, you know, we've talked about this every other week and it doesn't seem at to be At seven or at eight <laughs> exactly. or at nine. Exactly. <clears throat> and it's keeping going lower. You, you, don't, you don't have any single point, like the three digits. I have no crystal ball for you on that one. Where are we up? We'll give you an update on the rest of the American banking. I mean, we're shaping up. It's May. We get into summer. Everybody takes eight weeks of vacation like John Farrell. We come back. We do the business plan for 2020. How are the American banks doing right now? You know... Big question mark, right? I mean, there's some things that are kind of propping things up, the IPO market being one of them. But after Uber being so shaky last week, we're going to see how these next big ones come to market. And that's kind of propping up a lot of activity right now. Um, But the question is, it really just depends on how the markets hold up and and whether people want to trade or stay on the sidelines. Shinoni. Or with business and business loans, like confidence was the theme last week. Do they, the loans flat? We've got to thank Shinoni. We should. Shinoni Basak. Bloomberg Investment Banking Reporter. And now, folks, someone we don't speak to nearly enough, uh, one of our truly most prescient uh, viewers of American politics, William Schneider. You know Bill Schneider from CNN over the years, now at George Mason, and his exceptionally direct book, Standoff, How America Became Ungovernable, was out a year ago. It was true. 
It was out now, it's true, and in a year from now, it'll still be true. Bill Schneider, how big is the standoff right now, May 2019? It's getting bigger and bigger. They're about to take legal action between the president and Congress. The President Trump uh, essentially won't respond to Congress. Uh, he's attacked the FBI. Right. He's attacked the CIA. Nothing gets done. It's gridlock. What you were great at, the charm of you and Gergen going at it and the others as well on CNN years ago, is parsing an always fractious Democratic Party. We had the royal years of the Clintons, maybe on to the Obamas, and we are back to the fractional tone of a Democrat. Synthesize that for us right now. Well, let me say this. I'm old enough to know when the oh, here we go. among Democrats was actually worse <laughs> over civil rights, over the Vietnam y- War. Young People Schneider, were rioting yep. in the streets of a Democratic convention. It's not good now because, look, what do we got? 24 Democrats running for president, but they're not in open warfare against each other. There's a division right. between the front runner, Joe Biden, and a lot of the progressive Democrats, but that's something we've seen in the Democratic Party for a long time. And then how, Not civil rights or Vietnam. But how does that play out, the certitude of Biden out front? How does that play right now? Well, Biden is out front. He's a familiar figure, and I think there is a reason for it. Biden offers voters something they're longing for that they're not getting from President Trump. In one word, normalcy. Normalcy sounds kind of boring. It's not a very exciting thing. Democrats like to fall in love with John Kennedy and Bill Clinton and Barack Obama, someone who sweep them off their feet. But I think after Donald Trump, what they may what they may want is not a great lover, but a good provider. And that's the way (laughs) Joe Biden is running. Well, Bill, didn't the electorate tell us uh, in 2016 that that's not what the American people want, that they want something radically different? And doesn't that not play into Mr. Biden's hands? Uh, Well, that was in 2016. That was two years ago. Things change. I think what's happened is there's a lot of Trump fatigue setting in. Uh, He's chaotic. He's disruptive. Every day we hear new shocks, firings, sudden policy reversals, insulting tweets, blatant lies, angry threats. People are really getting tired of that. And that's why Biden looks attractive. He looks, you know, he is old. He would be the oldest president ever elected for the first time. Uh, But he looks like a return to normalcy. And to an awful lot of voters, that's exactly what they want. We can talk to William Schneider about old. How do you think old will play in the campaign, Bill Schneider? Well, it's going to be interesting because the top two Democrats in a field of, what do we now have, 24, with uh, Mayor de Blasio getting in? Oh, my God. Um, But uh, age doesn't seem to be a big issue at this point. My guess is that in the primary process, when we see a lot of candidates drop out, the race could very well end up between two septuagenarians. There would be Joe Biden, who next year will be 77, and Bernie Sanders, who will be 78, and represents a constituency that wants revenge because they figure he was treated badly by the Democratic establishment. So we could yeah. see some sort and I, I call it a steel cage death match between <laughs> two guys in their late 70s. If you're, just joined, be interesting? if you're just joining us, Coast to Coast, William Center, Bill Schneider with us. You know him for years uh, with his excellence in driving the American discourse forward. It's CNN. His book is Standoff, Paul. So, Bill, how about some of the more progressive uh, members of the Democratic Party that are in the race, whether it's Senator Warren or, or someone else? How do you think they are going to fare during the primary season? And do you think 
any one of those types of candidates, i.e. not a centrist, uh, could in fact uh, go up against uh, Mr. Trump? Well, I think the likeliest candidate to do that would be uh, Bernie Sanders. He's got a following. They're angry because they feel as if they were cheated out of the nomination and the Democratic establishment uh, wasn't very nice to them. Uh, There were revelations of the emails from the Democratic National Committee. They want revenge, and that's a powerful motive in politics. That's why I say it's going to be a, a standoff at the end between Biden and Sanders. And my guess is that Biden will win, although I... I, uh, it wouldn't surprise me if Sanders won. He, Sanders, look, right now he's running ahead of Trump. Uh, you can't say he's unelectable, but he'd be a very unusual candidate for the Democrats to nominate. So, Bill, let's assume that uh, former Vice President Biden does win the Democratic nomination. Can he close? How do you think he will run against uh, President Trump? Well, he's already running against President Trump, and a lot of Democrats are scratching their heads. They're saying, what, he already thinks he's the nominee? Well, that's his strategy. He wants to make the point... He can beat Donald Trump. And there are lots of polls of the electorate that suggest that might be possible. Because in the polls that I saw, something interesting is happening. People are saying what they want is political experience. What they want is a political insider. There was a Monmouth University poll that asked, which candidate would you prefer as the party nominee? A Democrat you agree with on most issues but would have a hard time beating Trump? Or a Democrat you do not agree with on most issues but would be a stronger candidate against Donald Trump? Electability beat ideology hands down, 56 to 33 percent. Bill Snyder, one one final question because we have to go to some breaking news. But very simply, what does Vice President Biden have to do in a given state, let's say Wisconsin, that Secretary Clinton didn't do? He has to get voters excited. Uh, He has to resist the urge, and this is, I think, not part of Biden's personality, to be condescending. I think Clinton lost in large part because she seemed condescending to most voters. Uh, She was a charter member of the political establishment. Uh, Remember, she called the Trump people a basket of deplorables, the world's most condescending statement. Biden isn't like that. When Biden campaigns, uh, he's one of you. He has has a connection with working class voters. Uh, Clinton, I think, was a little remote from ordinary voters. Biden is making it clear that he's on the same wavelength. It is a primer. The book is Standoff, of course, from William Schneider at George Mason, of course, for years at CNN. Bill Schneider, thank you so much. Really look forward to catching up with you in the um, political months ahead as well. Our Michael McKee is in Florida, the Federal Reserve Bank Atlanta meeting. Here is Michael McKee. Well, thank you very much. And we'd like to thank our guest, the president of the Atlanta Federal Reserve Bank, Raphael Bostic. Thanks for joining us on Bloomberg Television and Radio Worldwide. I know you've been traveling around your district a lot lately, and I want to find out from you what the district is thinking about the economy these days. What are companies thinking about the economy and what they're going to do going forward? Well, First of all, it's good to have you here. Thanks for coming down. And I would say that you know, as I go around the 6th District, I talk to business leaders. Um, they all you, pretty uniformly are pretty confident and pleased with how the economy is going right now. Um, they know that the economy's growth is not going to be at the pace that it was last year when there was so much extra stimulus. Uh, but they're not expecting and they're not seeing a significant drop-off 
to suggest that the economy is going to be weaker for them. Their consumer demand is remains strong, and uh, they're pretty optimistic. Now, the one thing I would say, though, is that as you go across the district, there is variation. So if you go to the big cities, uh, we definitely see a lot of robust growth. But there are many parts of the district where we're not seeing that same sort of robustness. Some of the smaller towns, places that are more rural, there's a lot of variation across the district. And I've been really trying to get my finger on that pulse of variation uh, to really appreciate some of the challenges that, that some particular communities are having. Well, are companies reporting higher input costs either from tariffs or because you're capacity constrained in this economy? So they are reporting that. Uh, to date, what they're telling me is that um, the increases haven't been so great that they can't manage it. So they haven't been passing through most of those costs to uh, the final product consumer. Uh, but they have expressed some concern that you know, there, there are limits to how far or how long they can forbear. And uh, we may be approaching those depending on how uh, tariffs evolve and, and the negotiations. Well, what are they saying about investment going forward? Are they going to be adding to capacity uh, or is it tariffs holding them back or is it uncertainty or is it just lack of enough demand to increase investment? Well, there's some variation in this. Some say, you know, we have, we're, meeting, we're meeting demand, we're doing fine, and so there really aren't investment opportunities. Most are telling us that, you know, there are going to be opportunities, but the uncertainty definitely has affected them. Uh, and until they're confident about what the rules of tomorrow are going to be, they're going to wait and see. And, and that's an important thing for us uh, to be mindful of as, as my team goes around and tries to understand what's going to happen moving forward. Uh, and then there are a whole host of others who are trying to figure out what opportunities might be there, trying to incorporate new technologies to increase the productivity of their workers. And that's happening over a much longer arc. And so a lot of the, um, the, the resolution of that will just take time to play out. What about consumers? Earnings have been growing above 3% now, which has sort of been a rough target for the Fed. Uh, do they notice that? And do you think we're going to see a ramp up in consumer spending? Or are people kind of sated with everything they bought? So that's a very good question. Uh, consumer spending has been strong and it's been robust for, for quite some time. And I've not really heard or seen any signs to suggest that that's going to fall off considerably. Now, certainly, um, I'm also not seeing signs that it's going to go ramp up, so, so I'm not expecting to see a, a big acceleration in consumer spending, but I'm not seeing anything that would suggest that we're going to see any weakness or, or weakening in the months to come. Well, when you put it together, the businesses and the consumers in your district, do you get an impression that we're late cycle, mid cycle? Where are we? So I don't actually even like to talk about it like that. The economy is operating the way that it's operating. And it's really operating in a sustained way. The growth is robust, and it is something that looks like it can go on for quite some time. For me, I, I think about the cycle, if you want to talk about it, uh, in the context of risk-taking. And are we starting to see signs that businesses and consumers are taking more risks than they, than they might have otherwise, and starting to take risks that some might consider to be imprudent. When you start to see those kind of risks, that to me is the equivalent of this late cycle that you would talk about. And I'm really not seeing that. You know, businesses are being pretty prudent. Uh, the uh, debt that consumers are taking on is happening mainly at the uh, higher credit quality levels among households with higher credit quality. So I'm not seeing risks to suggest that, um, that we're at a tipping point where the economy should um, or might turn. Well, do you think at this point um, 
the markets are then ahead of themselves in thinking that you got to do a rate move either one way or another. They're betting at the moment on, a, on rate cuts. Yeah, well, I am not in the, the position right now where I think that a move in one direction or the other is more likely. There are a lot of risks out there which, if they come to fruition, might have the economy weaken. And if that happens, then a rate cut might be appropriate. But there are also a lot of sources of uncertainty that if they're resolved in particular ways, the economy might actually get a whole lot stronger, which could suggest that we might want to do a rate hike. Right now, there is still uncertainty, yeah. right? So, so it's hard to say uh, what the next move will likely be. But I am certainly not in a case where if you ask me how the scales are, I don't feel like, for me, they're tilted more to the cut than to the hike. I think we're pretty much in balance. Well, monetary policy works with long and variable lags, as they say. So do you think that the December rate hike was still justified? Could it be a mistake? Could the Fed be slowing the economy as the year goes on? So I actually don't think it was a mistake. You know, it fit in my model. I was very supportive of the cut in December. I thought that that was going to be one, probably the last one, then we'd have to see what happened with the economy. Uh, and, you know, when I talk about the arc of my policy, um, it really goes to the, with the feedback I was getting from businesses. Early 2018, businesses were excited. They were energized. We had just had the tax reform. They saw a lot of possibilities. When I got to the middle of the year to the, about September, business leaders were telling me something very different. They said, you know, we're comfortable. We're going to move on. But there's uncertainty in 2019, and you guys might want to just hold off for a bit. And that became sort of a, a common theme in what I was hearing. So I... I listened to them, frankly, and you know, they said, 2018, you're, you guys are good. 2019, we think that you should uh, look and, and take your time and don't be rushing to a number. And that's pretty much how we're operating. So, so I actually think that the policy course that we've done um, has been exactly on point. I think the economic performance would bear that out. We've seen growth continue above the long-term trend. And we haven't seen very much inflation as well to suggest that the economy is overheating. And so I think we're in a pretty good place. Before we let you go, uh, you get to travel around and talk to all these people. And I'm curious, the media live in these uh, bubbles, in uh, of Wall Street bubble in New York, political bubble in Washington. What do people tell you about their economic decision making? How much is it affected by what happens on Wall Street in the stock market or what happens with Donald Trump? So there are two, those are two very different issues. First, with the stock market, it's important to remember that almost half of Americans don't have a position in the stock market. Right? And so their decisions are really based on other things, what's happening in the dollar store and Walmart versus their prospects for having a job. And what we've seen over the last been a 10-year expansion is growing confidence that the job they have today is going to be around tomorrow and also growing confidence that the economy is going to continue to perform in a way that they can start to make longer plans. So I think that from an economic perspective, um, it's much more the general performance that is more important than Wall than the stock market per se. In terms of Washington, you know, I hear a lot of different viewpoints on the politics of Washington. Um, there's frustration. Uh, there are a lot of folks who feel that um, we should be able to get to more bipartisan uh, positions that could really get policies that would help the economy move forward. But in general, I think that even the, the political uh, landscape has not been one um, that has really uh, caused people to lose faith in the economy. And I'll tell you, 
the, the president's approach is very different than his predecessor, and it's taken people a while to get comfortable with that. Uh, but in our last board meeting, um, one of my board members said, you know, she feels that um, on some level we've adjusted and adapted, and so are less being uh, less affected by the day-to-day -day swings and the, the new things that come on a day on a regular basis. Well, thank you very much. Raphael Bostic, he's the president of the Atlanta Federal Reserve. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.